0: on south
1: everyone and welcome to an all new episode of Wonder Filled Week. I am your host, Caitlin Corey. I think we can all agree, 2020 has been a lot. We've all experienced loss and hardship in some form or another and it can feel like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. Many of us may even be feeling lost and like we are losing sight of who we are and what our purpose is. I believe we could all use some inspiration I am honored to welcome a very special guest on today's show who I believe we can all draw inspiration from, Mr. Jose Lugo. Jose is 33 years old. At the tender age of 16, Jose joined an LA street gang and was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison just two years later at the age of 18. When he paroled from prison, Jose vowed to himself that he would never go back and dreamed of one day telling the stories of his peers. Jose continued through life, never fully understanding the value in his own story. At the age of 31, he returned to jail for a DUI. After his three-day incarceration, Jose had lost all hope. He took inventory of his life and saw himself only as a criminal with no value. On the brink of taking his own life, he was able to remember a simple truth that he had believed as a child. That he, as a person, had inherent value. Therefore, his story had value. It was in that moment that he was able to find the value in his story once again. Jose is the lead creative and founder of We Are All One Story. He travels the country, listening to and sharing people's stories in hopes of inspiring others to look inward and find the value within themselves and their experiences. Jose is set to release his memoir, Love, Faith, and Violence, A True Song and Story, next month, November 2020. When asked why he does this, Jose responds, quote, I believe that the only thing that matters in this world are people and the impact we have on their hearts. When I refound the value in my own story, I knew that I would have to help others do the same. This is the dream of my dreams. There is no other way for me. End quote. Without further ado, let's welcome Jose Lugo to the program. Hello, Jose. Welcome to Wonder Week.
2: Awesome. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. I'm honored to have you here. So I want to thank you for making time to speak with me today because I know that my listeners will certainly draw inspiration from your story and your passion project. We are all one story. So before we can get into how you arrived here, we sort of have to take it back a bit, right? So we have to go back to where it all began for you so if you would can you please take us back to your childhood and explain how your experiences from that time put you on a path that you hadn't planned for
2: um yeah if we're gonna start it in my childhood um you know i always remember i was a generally i was a happy kid um i did have like a a joy i always um i always walked outside and i was just content with whatever i had i was i was easy to please and all those things um but when my parents got divorced when I was five um and my mom had to raise six kids on her own my mom you know right after that you know things started to change and um you know she decided that uh you know extreme physical discipline was going to be the only way to keep all six kids in line and you know when my mom first started, you know, beating me, which is what happened, um, you know, it didn't make sense to me. I couldn't understand, you know, how somebody I love so much and somebody who I know, you know, also know loves me, can inflict so much pain. And I think as a kid, you subconsciously start to rationalize those things, and um, that's exactly what I did. I rationalize, um, you know, how someone can. Love with hurting someone. You know, I connected the two at a very young age, and you know, growing up, you know, my mom was you know not um, the most like uh, lovey-dovey, compassionate, or any of those things. She was like a hard worker. She was a grinder, and and she did everything she could to um, you know keep us afloat. But I had my sisters who did show me a good amount of um, not necessarily affection, but a lot of care and a lot of uh, support. So I did have that to offset, you know, the extreme discipline that, that my mom was giving out. But, um, you know, and that was consistent. You know, that, that violence within the household was consistent all the way until I left when I was, eventually when I went to prison. Um, you know, so growing up, I think that primed me for, you know, the gang culture at the end of the day. Um, you know, I couldn't really make sense of the world. Um, I walk outside and, you know, we we grew up in L.A., the inner cities of L.A. I walk outside and it's kind of the the chaos that I'm seeing at home. There's the chaos is outside of my front door as well. And there's a familiarity to it. There's a um, something familiar about it, like it feels normal and i gravitated towards you know the homies and i gravitated towards the gangs and and i liked it like at at a young age i mean i had been hit my whole life and then now i can dispense violence and i can fight back and and it was empowering in its own way and um it's a lot of good virtues you can get but they're all for the wrong reasons so it was the outlet and i think it was an outlet for a lot of my friends growing up because we had chaos at home we had chaos in the streets it was what chaos do we want the chaos where we can't do anything and we're helpless or do we pick the chaos where we can fight back and we all definitely pick the chaos that we can fight back um you know so I joined the gang when I was 16 I went to prison when I was 18 and a half I got convicted of uh, multiple robberies I got a five-year prison sentence, and, and that started a whole another whole journey, you know, you know um, within prison.
1: Yeah, let's take it back to when you're 16. So when we're teenagers, you know, those years can feel really overwhelming, especially since, you know, you're describing your childhood, chaotic, violence. You know, you're seeing this in your home. You're seeing this in your neighborhood. Right. And generally at that age, we're all seeking sort of the same thing, no matter where you're from. If you're from an inner city, if you're from a small town, you're a teenager, you're going through changes, you're seeking acceptance, validation, friendship, you're trying to fit in whatever that means. So do you think that's what was one of the things that drew you into the gang? You know, you would have that acceptance, you'd be part of that almost community in a way.
2: That's exactly what drew me in. I mean, it was friendship, it was validation, it was... um, what I felt was love. And it wasn't too far from the love that I was experiencing at home. You know, the way that we proved that we loved each other was fighting for each other physically or, or doing even other things that involved violence. And, and of course that like, it made absolute sense to me. It seemed like, yeah, man, this is love. And, you know, these guys must really love me. And, and man, this is for real. This is serious. I'm a part of something, and. And when you're young and you don't know any better, there is really no sense of awareness of what's happening. Um, you're caught in that vortex of thinking all these negative things are positive because you don't know any better. I certainly didn't know any better. And it felt like,
1: you know, it felt like home. And in the pursuit of acceptance and validation, and particularly I think this would be true in a gang, you do things, we all do things in our adolescent years, you know, that we know are wrong. We do them anyway. But in your case, it had, you know, much dire, much more dire consequences than maybe your typical teenager who just, you know, makes a mistake, gets caught drinking this or that. Your choices, you know, led you to, like you said, be arrested and sentenced to five years in prison at the age of 18, and I know that's technically an adult, but I would still say that's a boy, like seeking, you know, you were seeking community, you were seeking something, and you got caught up in something. Thinking back on that time, what was going through your mind as an 18-year-old, I'll say young man, entering the prison system, and what was your time in prison like?
2: You know, being 18 and a half and going into prison, it's kind of like um, when you grew up, how a lot of us grew up. in in the gang culture we have tunnel vision we can't see envision a future I couldn't that was true for myself I couldn't envision anything else for myself I couldn't envision you know hey go this path and there's a future for me I'm just stuck in the in the street mentality and you know prison became an extension of that you know so now it's just more about surviving and and you know it's, it's it's um it's own society and you have to learn on the fly what's okay what's not what you can when you can't do um luckily i've been a pretty observant person and you know there's a feel for it too like it there's a real animalistic nature in prison and there's a real feel of like what's going on and um you have to learn that um you know, luckily, the, vi- like the, the violence was also an extension that wasn't foreign to me. So it's not like we, I go in and, and, oh, my goodness, look at all this the consistent violence every day. That wasn't a shock at all. It was, a, an, it was just an ex- more of what I had already known. Um, and being 18 and a half, I, I was kind of happy I went to, I got caught because I didn't know where my life was going. I didn't have a vision. I was like, man, thank goodness. Like, like, I needed that time out. Because if I didn't have it, God knows what else I would have done. If you just extrapolate the things I was doing, you don't just stop it. You just keep on going more and more and more. And, and you know, I there was a like a little bit of gratitude, like, like, I could breathe like, man, like, I knew that I couldn't get myself out of it and I needed something else to and you know that you know that sentence helped me um, at the very least um, take myself out of the streets into prison where I can sit down and at least start looking at the bigger picture or at least try to.
1: Now you you mentioned your sisters and they were a source of support for you growing up, even with everything going on. How did they react to you going to prison and were they there for you during that time?
2: Oh yeah, they've been, um, they've been with me the entire time. Um, you know, I get, uh, I might start crying.
1: It's <laughs> um, um, okay. Um, this is a safe space.
2: You know, my sisters definitely have a special place in my heart and, and we've been through thick and thin. Um, you know, when I was in, in jail, I remember when I first got arrested and I'm in the city jail before I go to the L.A. County Jail, my sister Jackie comes in and visits me and. You know, you see the disappointment in her face and, and you see the you know, she's crying, she's got tears coming down her eyes and she just asked me, she goes, you know, why? Once she asked me, "Did you do it?" and I said, "Yeah." and then she said, "You know, why, my middle name's Carlos? she said, "Why, Carlos? why would you do this?" and it's like so complex, and I remember just looking at her and and how you know in that moment, how can I tell her that that I'm just mad at the world that that i that I've given up hope that I don't see a future for myself that I think this is the best thing going for me that i I couldn't put that into, into words, so I just cried with her, and um, we cried together, and I went back to my cell, and, you know, my sisters faithfully wrote me back and forth, and, you know, that's something that's very important for any inmate when their family or their friends keep in contact with them, it reminds you of who you are. You know, reminds you that you're not, this, you're not just this inmate. You're not just this criminal. You're not just this CDC number. You're still somebody's brother, somebody's son. You're still a human. And, and man, I don't know if they hadn't written me those years. Like, it's easy to get lost in the persona and the society that is, you know, prison and street
1: society. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you had that support system. And I know that when you were paroled, you made a vow to yourself that you were never going to go back. But I imagine that life is not just the black and white and simple and all roses for a young man who's stepping out of the prison system. So what did the years look like following your release? I imagine it wasn't just a simple quick fix and life was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) No,
2: no, it was far from perfect. Um, You know, I got released from prison and I was quote unquote, a free man, but I was still very much in prison in my thought process. Um, I still had an inmate. A state of mind. Um, what I mean by that is that, you know, my actions were dictated by my pride and my ego, um, which is in the streets can help you survive in long term, it leads to destruction 100%. Um, so I got out of prison. I didn't really have a plan. Um, I still kind of had tunnel vision. And now I was fed like I had a huge ego. And now I had a, even more pride because now I had even you know, more access in the streets. I had, um, a different level of notoriety and, and I was known and I was respected and, you know, your head gets pretty big and, you know, that's what happened, especially at a young age. And I just fell back in the trap. It was all I knew. You know, I was somebody in the streets. All my friends were in the streets. You know, I had, um, Still, a sense of community, belonging, even a little bit of a purpose, and and it you know it's kind of sucks you back in. And you know, I was two years into my parole, and I'm getting my haircut, and I walk out walk out of the barber shop. I look to my left; the guy's probably a hundred yards away from me, and I recognize him immediately. It's a guy you know I had we had a personal issue, and you know, I see the barrel of his gun, I see him, and then he discharges the firearm, boom, boom, boom! it ricochets, I hit the deck, my friend gets, um, you know, he gets hit in the face, but he doesn't, you know, he's just bleeding, so it skimmed his skull, and I remember just seeing the blood coming down his face, and it was like in that moment I was like, man, I'm not gonna be able to <laughs> since I had tunnel vision still, I was like, I'm not gonna be able to get off a of parole if I stay in LA. <laughs> that was just my first thought. And um and you know, I hadn't ever had a relationship with my dad. And my dad always said, hey, if you need to get away, you can come, you can come stay with me and we can help you get your life together. And you know, I think that night I called him and I said, hey Pops, I need to take you up on your offer and I need to get out of here. And that's exactly what I did.
1: And where did that take you? You left LA? I
2: went to, I went to San Antonio, Texas, <laughs> um, you know, and, um, I tried to live like a, uh, uh, you know, quote unquote normal life and, and it was a process and, within that process, I still couldn't let go of my pride and ego and the, the persona I had built. I still couldn't let go of it. So I would still, you know, dibble and dabble in, in illegal things here and there. And actually, you know, li- like little things that really is just like holding on to that bad part of you that you should let go. And, and I just couldn't let go of it. Cause you know, it was really all, it was what I thought it was all I had. I mean, It was not just a persona. It was something that would protect, you know, the vulnerable kid inside. Like I'd rather you see the facade than to see me. I wasn't comfortable being me. I was afraid of being judged. I was afraid of being myself. I didn't think I could be myself. So I made this huge, huge mask that, you know, takes quite some work to make and, you know, bit by bit, like there's started crumbling. And, um, that culminated when I moved to, to Denver, Colorado, which is another, the other phase in the story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it brings us to the next phase. Well, I know that in the next phase from watching one of your previous interviews that you said something first that I want to mention that really struck me, you said rock bottom hits you from all sides. Yeah, And when you said that in another interview, I was like, wow, that is just the truth. Because people think it's just one hit. You just hit rock bottom. But (laughs) life just comes at you from every angle. And rock bottom is really more than just one thing, more than just one thing that happens. Um, So when did you decide that you had reached rock bottom and you needed to change the course you were on?
2: So, you know, it was a good amount of fate for sure. Um, My brother called me. You know, i was just floating like without purpose i didn't really know what my purpose was things like that and i was still the hurt little kid who couldn't express himself and like i instead you just like i never i wasn't a smile much of a smiler before either uh my brother just called me out of nowhere and he said um just like hey bro i need a roommate i was like what do you need a roommate?" he was married at the time i was like what do you need a roommate for and he says, well, I want to make the U.S. Paralympic team. I want to try and win a gold medal. I was like, man, that sounds exciting. Let's do it. <laughs> so um, he was having problems with his wife, and that's why he needed a roommate. And um, we both booked tickets. We both flew into Denver. We looked at places. We signed the lease that night, flew back home, packed our stuff, and came over here just like that. And, and um, you know, I thought that, that was going to be easy. <laughs> but... Um, I moved out here and now I had no friends. I had nobody to validate my identity. I had nobody to feed my ego. I didn't have community. I didn't have anything to prop help prop up this persona I had built. I was just me and I had never been alone with myself. I had never really looked in the mirror and really contemplate in depth all the things I was a part of, the things I had done, etc. and you know, the walls came crashing down. Um And man, it was, it was, it was intense. It was, it was one of the most, the most painful thing I had ever been through. Um Hands down, The you know, I ended up getting into deep depression and, you know, it could have, it, it could have took my life to be honest. And I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know, why yeah, I just felt so hollow. I felt so alone. Um I felt that my story didn't matter. I felt that my life didn't matter and and it was a battle every day just just to keep going. And you know, I've always known that I've been a fighter and and the more I would try to pep talk my way to get through the day, the more I'd go deeper into the depression like you can't fight it with 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 strong words and brute force and I was just lost utterly alone felt utterly alone and I felt that it was my punishment for all the things I had been involved in I felt that it was my due punishment
1: for the life I had lived um and it felt I couldn't argue with it and
2: man, it brought me to my knees that, you know, that, that battle within my mind brought me literally to my knees. And in that depression, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle it. And I was at the point of taking my own life. And I, you know, I don't know if you hear the emotion over, over this interview, but it's certainly something I never want to forget how it felt. Um, and, you know, in that last moment, I was like, man, when am I going to do it? You know, like this is the last fight I'm gonna be in, let's just get it over with. And, um, you know, I cried out to God, you know, on my knees, weeping. I didn't know what else to do. And, you know, in that moment, I did feel a glimmer of hope. And within that moment, you know, I felt that there was a chance. And because of that moment, you know, I'm still, I'm. I'm still here. And I, I haven't forgot that catalyst that has kept me going. And, you know, I, I started thinking and, um, you know, I had some hard realizations. One of them was that man, I was, you know, we try to convince ourselves that we're good people, especially if you're in the streets, like you, 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 you still think you're a good person and things like that. And, you know, I certainly wasn't, um, I had to realize that the whole way I had looked at life was completely wrong. That the whole rationale system that I had used to survive as a kid in the streets and in prison was completely wrong. Those things had to shatter. And the way they were able to shatter was because my pride and my ego shatter first. Um, you know, when you're against the ropes like that, The only thing that's going to help you get out of something that deep, a a depression that deep is the 100% truth. You have to be brutally honest with yourself. You can't lie. There can't, your foundation can be made out of lies because then you crumble because it's not a solid foundation. So, you know, from that moment on, I move forward with like, Hey, life's too short. It's just got to be completely honest with myself. I had it all wrong, but I'm still here and I got a chance. I got a chance to make things right.
1: Wow. I hear the emotion in your voice. And, I, and I've watched previous interviews where you discuss, you know, this rock bottom that you felt. And, and you mentioned that, you know, you contemplated suicide. And to be able to speak about that so openly, you've come a long way from not wanting to be vulnerable, from not wanting to share how you were feeling, for not wanting to let go of that tough exterior, you know, gang member, street life, like you had a reputation. I would say that you are doing the work and you have made great leaps and bounds. And I don't know if you feel that way but I'm, I'm hearing it in your voice and in your story and you've come so far. And I know that you mentioned before, you couldn't even look in, you know, look yourself in the eye and say that you are a good person because of the things you were involved in, the things that you've done. Mm-hmm. Now that some time has passed, you've reflected, you've changed the course that you're on. Do you think you're a good person now?
2: I mean, I try to be, um, you know, it's a journey, you know, it's a journey. Um, you know, I, I certainly make an effort. I give it my best effort. And that's all I can do. And that's all I, I do. I give my best effort to try and live, you know, a good life. And, you know, people might call you a good person if you're living a good life. So yeah, I, I try my best. I wake up with the intent to to do my part and to do good and to be kind and to give what I can every day.
1: Well, I think you're a remarkable person. And I think that what you're doing with your voice, your platform, and sharing your experience to try to help others who may be struggling, that is a purpose. And that is a very noble purpose. And you are making it happen with We Are All One story. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how your passion project came to life?
2: Man, well, that passion project, our passion project, it came out of that depression. Um, You know, it it came out of me losing the value in my own story and my own life. And, and it was at that extreme that I was at. And, and, you know, when I had that glimmer of hope, you know, before I was going to take my own life, it was the universal truth that we all know that your life matters simply by being. Um, and if you extend that to your story, why shouldn't your story matter just as much? Um, So from that, from, it was from that point that, you know, this, that idea came from, I was like, Hey, you know, I told Ralph, I was like, Hey bro, I got this idea. I was like, you know, we just got to listen to people's stories and share them in. And, um, but it came from, from that just simple realization, but we hear that all the time, but how many of us truly believe it? like what does that mean if your life has transcendent value intrinsic value apply that to your story what does that mean now like accept the responsibility that you have as a person like don't just go with the whims of what's happening now understand that you're the main character in your own story everyone else is a supporting character um and we just go around listening to people's stories and we remind them of just a very simple truth and um, there's nothing more powerful than a simple truth.
1: Absolutely, especially after years and years of not wanting to face your truth and not wanting to face the things that were going on, I think it's really admirable that not only are you challenging people to look at their own lives and find value, but you're saying, "I'll go first, you don't have to be scared. I'll tell you my story. I'll tell you all the darkest chapters, even if there might may feel painful to say them and I think by doing that you're opening up a stage for other people to do the same they might not do it right then but they're gonna it's gonna stick with them that you did that and they'll say wow like he came a long way and if a a tough gang member from the streets of LA (laughs) has turned his life around you know hitting rock bottom like we said hitting you from all sides contemplating suicide rediscovering your faith and really changing the course of your life and making the world a better place I think that's really going to inspire many many people. What is your dream for We Are All One Story? Where do you hope to see it in five years?
2: Uh, I mean, we have a pretty big dream for it. Um, You know, we want to see what we do um, nationally. We want to do it internationally. Um, You know, we're in it for the long haul and uh, we just focus on the work. And, you know, we focus on the people that we interact with all the time. But um, we want to see this go to the highest level. And we want to see we want to go and share people's stories all over the world.
1: I love it. Now, I have to ask, because, you know, you you are close to your family, your family, they are the supporting players in your story. Where do you stand now with your sisters, with your mom and your dad?
2: You know, my sisters, we've always been tight. and we're tight to this day um with my dad that was a journey and with my mom that was a journey you know before I had blamed him for (laughs) for a lot of things um I blamed him for my own decisions um and I held that resentment towards them and you know with my mom for sure I blamed her for a lot um And just finally, when everything started to change, I just saw my mom as a person in her own story. I mean, she's got her own life story and and there's reasons why, you know, she is the way she is. And then, you know, so I forgave her. And the same with my dad, like, you know, I saw my dad as another person with his own story. And regardless of him not being in my life, you know, we all like to put labels on what love is and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like everyone doesn't know how to show what the healthy love is. So they do the best they can. And I saw that, Hey, they did the best they could. And I accepted that.
1: And you forgave them. And do you forgive yourself for the things that you've done in your life?
2: Yeah. You know, um, you know, that was the hardest part. Like, um, you know, going in through that deep depression, I couldn't forgive myself. I couldn't look myself in the mirror. Um, How can I forgive myself for hurting other people? That person needs to forgive me. Um, And I knew that. I can't walk around, man, man, I forgive myself for doing these things. And, you know, that's where God came in. And, you know, that's why I had to go to him because I needed that forgiveness And I certainly got it and, um, you know, and I just, that's what I focus on.
1: And do you think your faith fuels you to keep going? It seems as though it does.
2: Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, when you're at the point of taking your life and the only thing that saves you from doing it is that spark of faith that little tiny bit of belief that was left way back when in the heart of my hearts where I had to dig deep so deep that I had to remember something I was believed as a five-year-old and then to to feel it and believe it and you know to see it in action day to day it's it fuels me every day 100%.
1: And what would you say to your 16 year old self who's about to join the gang and and go down that road? Would you stop yourself or would you think you needed to go through these experiences to get where you are today?
2: You know, there's nothing I could have told my 16 year old self. And, um, you know, um, but I wish that, you know, that my 16 year old self could feel love and could feel what I feel now.
1: That's beautiful. Well, Jose, I can't thank you enough for coming on Wonderfilled Week and sharing your journey with us. Your faith, your resilience, and your determination is truly admirable. You inspire me to look inward and, you know, find value in my own story, even if some of the chapters are embarrassing yeah. <laughs> or, you know, painful. But I think you're right. I think we all have to look inward and and, and see that. We have value. Our story has value. And if we share it, then it can help others as well. So I encourage my listeners to follow along on Instagram and Facebook at We Are All One Story. Visit your website, weareallonestory.net. And the best one, I think, is the YouTube, so you can see (laughs) the people. So go to YouTube and subscribe. We Are All One Story. You'll see a nice diverse mix of guests. But Jose, I thought it would be best for you to have the final word today. 2020 has been a tumultuous year for all and some people may be feeling unsure of what their purpose is they may be struggling to see the value that they possess so what would you tell someone who may be listening today who doesn't believe their life has value what message of hope would you leave with that person
2: one your life has intrinsic value um regardless of what you accomplish, regardless of what you do, regardless of what you don't do, you could sit at home all day. Your, your life still is just as valuable as the next person's. Um, you know, during this quarantine, I know we've all had a lot of, we see how long the days can be. Um, you know, just focus on the positives. Um, you know, finding your purpose, that's a journey. You just got to intently go on it. Um, There is a level of work that's required. There has to be a willingness for you to engage in the work that's needed to pursue your very own purpose. Um, And it doesn't have to be huge. So if you love doing something small, just try and do that consistently and you'll see that it'll just grow and grow and grow and grow.
1: I love that. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I really am inspired by you.
2: Oh, thank you. Thanks. I'm inspired by you too. Thank you. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right, Jose, I'll talk to you soon. Okay.
2: All right. Talk to you soon. I'm grateful and I'm thankful. I'm grateful and I'm thankful. <laughs> I'm